Welcome to Insomniacs, the podcast where we talk about all things true crime, supernatural, and mysterious. I'm Shar. And I'm Ashley. And these are the scary stories that keep us up at night. I've got a good one. This this one has yeah. definitely kept many a people up all night trying to figure out what the heck happened. Ooh. I like a good mystery. It's one that's been on our spreadsheet since the beginning. Really? Yes. And this is... I need to look at that spreadsheet. It's a hefty story. Do you want do you want to guess or do you want me to just start and f- you figure I it out? I want to guess. Hold on, I'm gonna get okay. Put on All my right. thinking we can, cap. We can have you I'm guess. gonna I'm gonna pull up the spreadsheet. I want. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. I'm ready to guess. <laughs> All right. So yeah, so like I said, this one has been on our spreadsheet since the beginning, uh, and it's definitely one of those mysteries that is still puzzling people to this day. Okay. There are plenty of explanations and, like, official reports as to what happened. Um, But there's also Uh. a lot of speculation about it as well. This story takes place in 1959 in the Soviet Union. The in, this incident involved the deaths of nine experienced. This is the, I know, 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 I know. It's oh, 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 it's um. Oh my god! Don't tell me yet. It's the the diet love pass incident. It is. Yeah. Yes. Okay. 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 This. Oh. Okay. <laughs> this story is something. Okay, so that did not take very long. So it's so I wasn't expecting it to. I hope you have Fine. a lot to say. I want I want all of your thoughts and opinions and input and all of it. Well, I I've only seen like maybe a documentary or two, but even then the one or mm-hmm. two that I've seen, it was just I don't have a whole lot of commentary. It may be like my yeah. own thoughts of what happened, but I'll let you continue and 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 give me all all the information you know so let me introduce the subject properly so the diet love pass incident is a mysterious and tragic event that occurred in the ural mountains of the soviet union in 1959 the incident involved the deaths of nine very experienced hikers and that's something that i'm going to stress is their experience and their preparation these were not just a group of kids who were like doing what the heck they wanted They were experienced, they were prepared, they knew what they were doing. So it involved the deaths of nine experienced hikers over unclear circumstances, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it has sparked numerous theories and speculations over the years as to what happened. For today's episode, I'm going to delve into the background of the Diet Love Pass incident explore the events leading up to the tragedy. We're going to examine the investigations that followed that. And then finally, we're going to discuss some of the various theories that surround the event to this day. Yes. Oh, my God. Are you excited? Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> I haven't heard about the story in a long time. So I'm excited to uh, yeah get a refresher on it. I'm excited for people who haven't heard about the story at all. Yeah, it is a crazy one. 
So let's start with the formation of the hiking group. The hiking group is officially known as the Dyatlov Group and was formed in 1958 by Igor Dyatlov. So that's why it's called the Dyatlov Pass Incident, the Dyatlov Group. It's named after him. He was a student at Ural University, and he was, like I said, an experienced hiker and ski enthusiast. Mm -hmm. So the group comprised of him and several fellow students and friends who shared a passion for the outdoors. So I'm going to go through the hikers. I have their names. I really just wanted to focus on how young all of them are. So we have Igor Dyatlov. He formed the group. He was 23. We have Yuri Doroshenko. He was 21. We have Luadmila Dibinia. She was 20. We have Georgi Krivonishensko, 23. We have Alexander Kolevatov. He was 24. We have Zaneda Kalmogorova. She was 22. Rustam Slobodin, 23. Nikolai Thibault Brignoles, 23. Semyon Zolotaryov, 38. And Yuri Yudin, who is 21. And Yuri is the sole survivor of the group. They were all under 25. Yeah, minus Semyon. Semyon Zolotarov was 38. Oh, he was 38. Oh, okay. All of them were... Yeah. Dude, what but were you doing at 23? Not hiking a mountain in the middle of winter, no. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> no. That's wild. Damn. Okay. I'm going to try to like shy away from all the names because there's a lot of names, a lot of Russian names, very hard to pronounce. And I don't want to get anything too mixed up, but right. I wanted to make sure I went over them at the top of the episode, A, because... They died, and it's a horrible tragedy. Mm. But B, I really wanted to stress how young these people were. Like yeah, yeah. almost all of them were under, were were younger than twenty five. Yeah, they're they're expert hikers and ex, uh, excursionists, and I'm just they like, were what the fuck was I doing at twenty three? Not that right. I think I was still in like junior college twiddling my thumbs and changing my majors and feeling lost in my life and then these people are like let's go on an excursion and and hike professionally exactly they were all grade two hiker certified and so at the time there was like grade one grade two and grade three and in order to meet each grade you had to have a certain number of hours of hiking under your belt and had to have hiked like specific difficulty rated trails um so all mm. of them were grade two hikers and they were all they would all be receiving grade three certifications upon their return from this trip and at this time grade three certification was the highest certification a hiker could receive in the soviet union so like they were very experienced how when did yeah, it just makes you think about like when were they getting their first ones or second ones Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, like, I know we hear a lot of stories about people who get lost on mountains or injured or die. And a lot of those stories are people who are woefully underprepared, who greatly, um, you know, overestimated their abilities. It's, you know, we hear a lot of stories like that. I just want to stress this is not one of those stories. Right. So the purpose and the goal of this expedition, A, like, they were really wanting to make complete like a historical expedition this was a they, they were meant to conquer the really challenging northern neural mountains this is sort of like a like an everest type of expedition like this is like a once in a lifetime 
their aim was to reach the summit of Otorten, which is a peak in the region known for its particularly difficult terrain and harsh weather conditions. Uh, and it was both a test of their skill. They wanted to see, A, that they could do it. Um, but B, it was also a really great opportunity for scientific and geographical exploration of that area. Because it was so oh, difficult, yeah. there's so little successful trips through that area. Being able to learn more about it was also going to be a big goal of the expedition. Each member of the group, was they were selected based on their experience and physical fitness and outdoor skills. And each member brought a unique set of skills to the group. Everything from navigation to survival to mountaineering, first aid. They all played a role in this group. They were not just chosen willy-nilly because they were besties. <laughs> like, this was thought out. <laughs> they didn't have friendship bracelets. And they didn't, like, this wasn't like a, hey, Ashley, I want to go hiking while I'm out there. Let's go. And you're like, okay. And then it wasn't anything like that. They, everybody had to bring something to the table. Exactly. And they it, they were a very close-knit, tight group. Like, there was they were very friendly with one another. So they also had that going for them. There was a great sense of camaraderie. But it wasn't just, like, a friend's trip. It was – everyone was chosen right. specifically because they had skills. Merlin's joining us again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The hikers were all well aware of the challenges that they would face, and they were prepared for this arduous journey. They knew it was going to be difficult, but they, they prepared for it. They felt they had the skills, and they were confident. The hiking route was submitted to the higher commission, like whoever they, you know, like for us with, um, we people are, are submitting hiking routes is usually like the like fish and game or like the forest service. Or you, when you're going on a big trip, you submit your route to this commission so that they know where you're going, they know where you are to make rescue attempts easier in the event that you do go missing. So they had submitted yeah. their route to the local council. The route was approved. The goal of the expedition was to reach or or attend, which is a mountain 10 kilometers north of the site where the incident occurred. So the route was estimated to be a category three and was undertaken in February, which is the most difficult time to traverse the mountain. That sounds like a good time. <laughs> so i don't know why they picked february specifically but also later on we'll talk about how like if they'd gone later in the year it also could have had been just as dangerous in other ways but they oh. they specifically chose february which is a very difficult time to traverse that mountain range maybe they wanted a challenge they did. This was the point. It was meant to be a challenge, but it wasn't so far outside of their skill levels. So it wasn't just like me waking up one day and yeah. being like, I can hike Mount Everest. I could do that. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I would not be able to yeah. do that. But it was not it was not like someone like me being like, no. I could totally do this. Please. What like it's hard. It was not that. They wanted a little bit of a challenge, but still within their capabilities to exactly. do Exactly. So. Interesting. They wanted to grow as hikers, but they also wanted to do something that hadn't been done before, really. But like and I said, there's this a is... bunch of them. So they're like, we got this. Exactly. And they all had different specific skills that were meant to help them. Outside of the skill level, the group also shared a passion for adventure and exploration. So they, they had this sense of camaraderie as well. So there was a sense of trust and collaboration. They were all ready for this. They were very prepared. They were all excited. They got along with each other. Uh, it was really kind of like the best case scenarios and everything. So they put in a lot of time and planning into this trip. They meticulously planned their route, their provisions, their equipment. They included considerations mm. for weather patterns, for potential challenges and necessary safety measures. 
They took care of everything. They even like made sure that all of the necessary supplies were split evenly among the group. So every, no, not one person was carrying too much weight. Like they really thought about everything. So they meticulously planned their itinerary. They detailed the route they would take through the Northern Ural Mountains. Like I said, including the pe- reaching, reaching the peak of Oraten, um, which is particularly challenging peak. They um, included tents and sleeping bags, hiking boots, warm clothes, food supplies for the whole duration of the expedition, which they were expecting to take a couple of weeks. Uh, and each member carried a share okay, of so the communal equipment. Was be. Yes. So it was expected to last yeah. a couple of weeks. Um, so each member cared, carried a share of the communal equipment so that they distributed the, the load evenly across everyone. So like they really planned this out. Given the harsh climate of the Ural Mountains, they took into account the prevailing weather conditions. They equipped themselves with appropriate clothing and gear to withstand extremely low temperatures and snowfall. They brought all their navigation tools. They had maps, compasses, other navigational tools to ensure that they stayed on course and that they avoided getting lost in the wilderness. They had took other safety measures. So they included establishing a base camp with designated meeting points across the, the trail and communication plans if if the group were to se- separate. So they came up with contingency upon contingency. We have a base plan. These are going to be our meeting points throughout the, our, our camps throughout the route. If you get separated, this is our plan for this event, for that, that event, for this thing. They really took all that into account. They had communication equipment, which granted is 59. It's not great, but they carried a radio for emergency communication. Right. Um, because they knew that maintaining contact with the outside world and other expedition teams was a priority for safety. I'm sure they knew Morse code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Probably, you know. I mean, how else are they going <laughs> to send out an emergency signal? Uh, so all of this to say, they they were prepared. They prepared physically. They made sure to enhance their fitness. Uh, they mentally prepared for this. They conducted research on the area. They studied maps. They studied geological information. Um, they also were planning on documenting the whole trip. So in journals and photographs, they were uh, planning on capturing all of that so that they could capture their experiences and their observations. All this to say, they were very prepared. They were pretty prepared. Yeah. They were very they prepared. They were very prepared. And I'm over here thinking about what a potato I was when I was 23. <laughs> right? And these people are like... They're super fit and they're super planned and coordinated and they're going to go in and survive. And and I'm like, <laughs> so useless. Yeah. <laughs> but all right. Meanwhile, I'm like, you can't go outside. It's cold. My little toesies. <laughs> my toesies. <laughs> I have to do my Walmart order. <laughs> Instacart. I need my sandwiches. <laughs> and no, it's just. I'm pathetic compared to them. That's what I'm thinking. The whole the whole time we're going through that list, I'm like, wow. I just <laughs> I, I wanted to spend some time on That's that amazing. because I want to stress they were not novice. And they they planned for contingencies on their contingencies on their contingencies. Here's the itinerary, right? The Dyatlov Group's expedition had, like I said, a detailed itinerary outlining their planned journey through the northern Ural Mountains with their ultimate plan to reach Oraten. So they commenced in the city of Svedlovsk, where the group gathered and finalized. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know Russian. 
um, spurred loss. I don't know. Um, but they, they commenced in that city where they gathered and finalized their preparations. They then traveled to the settlement of Vijay, which is the last inhabited outpost before venturing into the wilderness. They spent the night there. They loaded up on things like bread and they ate a good dinner. And they like really like got prepared. And the hike, the actual hiking journey began from Vijay with the group heading north towards the mountains. What was the date that they headed out? They headed out on January 27th, 1959. Mm. Okay. The actual hiking journey began from Vijay on Vizai, Vijay. I don't know. Vizai. V-I-Z-H-A-I. I didn't make it easy yeah. with all the Russian names in this, this episode, let me tell you. But the hiking began from that outpost with the group heading north towards the mountains. They established their base camp on the slopes of the Kolat Sikal, which is a mountain in the Ural Range. Uh, so from the base camp, that's where they were planning on starting that the the actual hike to Odoran Summit. This was going to include them navigating through valleys, ridges, and obviously through potentially snowy conditions because this is January slash February mm. in the northern mountains of Russia. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I said, along the way, they had created strategic checkpoints to ensure that everyone was accounted for and to manage the expedition efficiently. And they were planning on setting up tents at various locations along the route to serve as temporary campsites. Sorry, I know you went over everyone. But how many people again were there in total? Nine. Not, okay, nine. Got it. So there were, let me just go up and double, double check. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Well, technically ten. Oh, okay. So but ten. there was that one survivor. So the reason that there was that one survivor is because he ended up having to leave early because of health issues. So he ended up leaving the group early, turning back and going home. Oh. They continued on. And let me tell you, I bet you that was – he was like, thank God my knee was hurting me because that was right. the best thing that could have happened to me. So he was experiencing some knee problems. He wasn't feeling well. He was really struggling. So he turned yeah. back early. And that's why he – is the sole survivor of the group. So nine of them continued onward towards the completion of the trip. Um, but yeah, that's skipping forward a little bit. But yes, so we had 10 people, one left, nine continued on. He didn't even know he was a survivor. He didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine just being like, oh, my knee is really bothering me. I don't think I can make this hike. I'm just, I don't want to, I don't want to hold you guys I'll back. I'll catch you guys later. Yeah, I don't want to hold you guys back. I want to make sure you finish this trip. So I'm just... I'm just going to head out. I'm going to go home. I will see you on February 12th when you guys get back. No biggie. Have fun. Have fun. Take lots of pictures for me. I can't wait to hear all about it. I'm like, you're a survivor. (laughs) The final leg of the journey would involve the ascent to the summit of Odoran. After reaching the summit, the group planned to descend and return back to their base camp. So the expedition was expected to conclude with the return to that Vizai outpost where transportation would take them back to Sverdlovsk. So it officially started on January 27th, 1959, and the hikers were expected to return by February 12th, 1959. But when Yuri Yudin, he's the one who left early. So when Yuri was leaving, Dyatla let him know, like, hey, I know we had planned to finish this on February 12th, but I'm expecting this to take a little bit longer. It'll probably take us another handful of days. And Yuri was like, all right, great. I'll pass that on. So 
Yuri leaves. He has a bum knee. He goes. He goes back to the outpost. He gets some hot cocoa. Probably it's Russia. Actually, Netflix and chill. it's Russia. So actually, he probably had a few few shots of vodka. Vodka. <laughs> But he like he gets himself cozy up and warm, and he's like, "You guys have fun with that. I'm I'm chilling. I'm gonna cozy up to my smut novel about Krampus." <laughs> That's probably not allowed in Soviet and- Union, Russia. <laughs> probably not. Anyway, that's my, <laughs> that's my snarky com- comment about that. So yeah, so it was a f- it was expected to finish by February twelfth, but so I'm sure they had to take his pack. And redistribute. You know, I didn't even think of that, but they probably did. They probably had to redistribute the communal supplies that he had amongst theirs as well. Um, But also at that point, like they were planning on doing these base these base camps, so they weren't planning on like they were planning on doing a tent at this camp and then another tent at this camp. They weren't. I don't think they were planning on like carrying the like each and every tent. So I think as they went up, I think their packs were going to get lighter. Oh sure, yeah. I, that's the that's the that's the vibe I got from the research I did at least. But mm-hmm. anyway, so the expedition was start was officially started on January twenty seventh, and they were expected to return by February twelfth. Although Yuri was told like, "Hey, might take us a little bit longer than t- the twelfth. Just let them know when you get back to base camp." And he was like, "Cool, I'll do that." Right. They were also dealing with really harsh and unforgiving mountain climates. Mm-hmm. The region is known for extremely low winter temperatures, extremely high snowfall, and very strong winds. So right. <laughs> January also is a particularly difficult time in the Ural Mountains. On top of everything, the winter months in the Ural Mountains are characterized by shorter daylight hours. So they also have that cont- to contend with. They're hiking at night and shit? Well, they only have so much daytime. So they, they don't do have it. a lot of time each day. So they're cont- they're also dealing with that as well. Temperatures are often recent reaching sub-zero levels. So like – Oh, no, thank you. Yeah. Negative 18 degrees Celsius. Like sub-zero. That doesn't sound like a good time no. to me. But that's their passion. I, yeah. So. so very, very cold. Also very windy. So then you have the wind chill factor, which makes it even colder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we're also talking huge amounts of snow accumulation. Think double digits of feet, like 10, 15 plus feet of snow. A lot. <laughs> and then, of course, you take into account snow-covered landscapes can also pose navigational risks. The land- landmarks are obscured, trail markers oh, are yeah. hidden, so you have that as well. And taking all of that into account, you have to remember that because of that, there was a risk of avalanches. Oh, yeah. And then since they're so remote, if something were to happen, it means they would have limited access to external resources in case of emergencies. So the expedition starts off fine. They start on January 27th. They began their trek towards Gora Orterin. On January 28th is when Yuri Yudin had to turn around. So he only lasted the first day, and then he skedaddled. So he was having knee and joint pain, and so he wasn't able to continue. So he, like I said, was a sole survivor. He died in 2013 at the age of 75. The only survivor of the Die Out Love Pass incident. So diaries and cameras were found around their last campsite, which made it kind of possible to track their their last route. So on January 31st, the team reached the outskirts of the Highland region, commenced to make preparations for the ascent up the, the hill, the hill, the mountain, the the peak. Run up the hill, make a deal with God. <laughs> and I'd get them to swap our places. <laughs> 
anyway, uh, so they they were preparing to make that that ascent up the peak. In the so in like the wooded valley at the bottom, they stored their excess food and their extra equipment, so they'd only be carrying what they need for the ascent and then the descent. They weren't carrying everything. And then by February first, the hikers initiated their passage through the mountain pass. Their intention appeared to involve traveling the pass and establishing a camp on the opposite side for the following night, and then being able to continue up the ascent. However, because of adverse weather conditions, like with snowstorms and diminishing visibility, they kind of lost their sense of direction. And so they veered westward accidentally. So they're oh. accidentally headed towards a different summit in the mountain range. Did they know that? They So they did realize their error. And so when they oh, okay. realized their error, they opted to establish a camp on the mountainside where they were. Which is a little odd because they, they decided to make the campsite on the mountainside as opposed to descending about a mile back down to the wooded mm-hmm. area where they would have had more protection and more shelter. like shelter from the weather conditions. Yeah. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Maybe they just didn't want to lose that altitude that they had gained. Oh yeah. They decided to make their camp on the mountainside and then they would continue and get like back on, <laughs> back on track the next day when visibility was hopefully better. So Dyatlov had agreed that he would send a telegram to the sports club as soon as they, uh, as soon as the group uh, returned back to that outpost. And like I said, they were anticipating February 12th, but when Yuri left, Dyatlov was like, hey, it's probably going to take longer. So when nothing came through on the 12th, no one was really that worried. Uh, there was no immediate reaction as delays of a few days were, were pretty common with these expeditions anyway. But by February 20th, they still hadn't heard anything. And so at that point, the so that's tr- a little bit more than uh, just a few days. Yeah, yeah. Now we're we're eight days late, so it's it's not great. Uh, so the hikers' families started demanding a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, which basically just consisted of volunteer students and teachers. And it wasn't until a little later where army police forces became became involved with planes and helicopters to try and search for them. Yeah. On the 26th of February, searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tents. So now we're going to start getting into the stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so they got there and they're like, what the fuck happened here? The campsite baffled the search party. The Mm. student who found the tent said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Their shoes. They didn't find bodies, right? Not on the campsite, no. So investigators also said the tent had been cut open from the inside. That's so weird. Yeah. So, okay, so you're the rescuers. <laughs> you're like, okay, we're going to find these guys. What's the worst case scenario? You you find them frozen in the snow? Yeah. Or, or something like maybe they got caught in a bad storm and you're approaching this and you just come across this baffling side of like, the campsite is just in shambles. Mm-hmm. The tent's being cut from the inside. Their shoes are left behind. Yeah. Well, who in their right mind is going to go run out into the snowstorm without their shoes? Especially experienced hikers. Like, they know the risks of hypothermia and frostbite and how important right. their extremities are to being able to successfully travel back home. Where they be running to? What right. happened? Who is cutting the tent from the inside? Like what is what is happening inside that tent to make it to make them have to escape so quickly that they can't use the door. They have to cut themselves out of the tent. Right. 
So damage the tent because they know they're not coming back to it. Right. So what the fuck? Exactly. So it was baffling to to mm-hmm. investigators. So the tent had been cut open from the inside and nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or, in some cases, a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed, leading down to the edge of a nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass. About They were probably settling in for the night yeah. or something. Or right? like they'd already been settled in. After about 1,600 feet or so, the, tr- the snow or the, the tracks had been covered by snow. So they could only follow those tracks so far. They began searching for these people because what the heck happened? <laughs> they're, they're, no, they're searching for bodies. They right. don't think anyone survived. And it's not too long before they find the first bodies because at the forest's edge oh, okay. under a large Siberian pine tree, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. And that's where they found the first two bodies, shoeless and dressed only in underwear. So they ran for their lives and tried to start a fire to stay warm? I guess. And they're wearing no clothes. Nothing. Not a stitch. Just the undies. Just the undies. (laughs) Just the undies. In sub-zero snowy temperatures. Wow. The branches of the tree were also broken to about like 16 feet high. Um, And so the research I was saying is that that's indicative that they had, one of the hikers had climbed the tree to look up for something or like maybe to... Escape something? That's what I literally had in my notes. To escape something, maybe? But, like, the branches were broken 16 feet up. So, like, if they were trying to climb, they weren't doing a very good job. (laughs) So, supposedly to look for something, but I wrote maybe to escape something. Hmm? Between the pine tree and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses. Um, these These three hikers had died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. Um, and they were found at distances of 980 feet, 1,570 feet, and 2,070 feet from the tree. So it appears that the three of them were trying to head back to the tent and like one person would, would fall and the two would k- try to keep going. And then the second person fell and the last person tried to keep going, but eventually they fell too. Locating the remaining four hikers would require over two months <laughs> and eventually on May 4th of that year, they were discovered beneath 13 feet of snow in a ravine 246 feet deeper into the woods from the pine tree. So if you think of the pine tree as like in the middle and the camp is on this side and then the, going to the woods this side. So you have the three hikers that are found like here, here, and here heading towards the camp. And then you find the remaining hikers that were like further out into the woods over here away from the pine. Hmm. So very interesting. You had people moving towards the camp and even more people trying to move away. Uh, They were all in varying stages of dress or undress. And we'll get into that. Okay. (laughs) Three of the hikers were more adequately dressed than the others. So evidence suggests that clothing from those who died earlier may have been removed and added to theirs. Notably, one of the female hikers, Dabinia, she was found wearing uh, one of the male hikers' burnt and torn trousers and also had a torn jacket wrapped around her foot and shin. I'll get more into detail on the injuries sustained when we're discussing, like, the autopsy results. Yeah. Um, but they were found to have a n- number of different injuries. Several had signs of severe physical trauma, including fractures and internal injuries. And some of these injuries were described as being similar to those that would have been caused in a high-speed car crash. 
That's crazy. So yeah. something attacked them. Right. Exactly. Someone or something. Someone, something. Something happened. In addition to the bone fractures, there were instances of soft tissue damage, like bruises and abrasions. The weirdest thing to me, though, is that there were instances where the internal injuries did not match the external injuries. And so what I mean by that is that the internal injuries were much more severe with minimal to no external injuries that were visible. Oh. Hmm. Which is very bizarre where someone has Hmm. intense, horrible internal injuries and there's not a mark externally. That was the thing that like kills me is that someone could have intense, crazy internal injuries and almost no external injuries to match. Like how does that happen? Mm Mm-hmm. And there is a theory that explains how it might happen, which is one of my favorite theories that we'll get into. Okay. But not yet. <laughs> okay. Um, there's also one of the hikers, Luadmilla, so one of the one of the female hikers. She was found missing her eyes and tongue. And they they don't know why. But her eyeballs and her tongue were missing. Like someone cut it out? Like it was evident someone cut it out? I I, I couldn't get more details on whether oh, it was cut out or I'm eaten sure. out or – But they were missing mm-hmm. and all I got in my research was that this still remains a mystery. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> there was also some hikers who exhibited signs of burns on their clothing and skin. And of course, of course, hypothermia played a role. Right. When it became obvious that this was more than just a hiking – like a hiking tragedy, like something something else is going on. Yeah. The, the Soviet authorities got involved. So they took charge of the investigation, recognizing the need to determine the causes of the hikers' deaths. The nature of the incident raised many concerns, and a formal inquiry was launched to ascertain the facts. So autopsies were conducted on all of the dead hikers to determine the cause of death and examine any injuries or anomalies. Also, keep in mind this is happening during Soviet this Soviet Russia, 1950s, Cold War. So, like, right. how trustworthy is the government really? Are they going to tell us everything that they found? No. Right. Exactly. Aren't they always honest with us? Always. Always. The Soviet Union is known for their honesty, you know? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, the autopsy findings included severe physical trauma, fractures, soft tissue damage, burns, and most notably, the absence of eyes and tongue from, from one of the hikers. It's just one of them. Yeah, just one. Right? Just one. No one else had any missing soft tissue Morgan, it was just oh, just her. Yeah, multiple members of the hiking group were found to have severe physical trauma, including fractured ribs and fractured skulls. And like I said, the extent of these injuries were compared to the force of a high-speed car crash, which naturally raises questions about the nature of the trauma and how the hell that happened. Well, yeah, someone beat them up, right? But who? Question. Uh, So the injuries indicated a level of force that went well beyond what might have been expected of a typical hiking accident. Some of the hikers also had burns on their clothing and skin, which we don't really have an explanation for. One of the female hikers, like I said, was found found wearing burned and torn trousers, which sparks a lot of speculation about the source of the burns, what happened, why, what was going on. Also, back to the internal injuries, internal injuries included damage to organs and fractures that were not immediately visible externally. And the internal trauma further deepened the mystery surrounding the circumstances and the deaths because they did not match 
the external trauma. It just doesn't make sense. If something's going to hurt you so bad, there's internal damage. There should be, there's going to be Bruising. proof of it externally as yes. well. Yes. Right. Something. Something. And there just wasn't. When I get, when I accidentally hurt myself and bump into shit, I get a bruise. Like within hours. I bruise without even so knowing. Someone, <laughs> or I, yeah, I'll have bruises on my legs. I'm like, how the fuck did I get that? But so what you're saying is that all these people had these internal injuries. Mm-hmm. They would have, they should have lesions. Right. They should, they should have bruising. They should have something. Nothing. And there are some people that just, so there are some people who have very bad external injuries, but there are other people who have very bad internal injuries with no external. It, it doesn't Weird. make sense to me. Make it make sense. And that was the the only thing I was saying this entire time I was researching. It's like, make this make sense because it doesn't. No. <laughs> so the autopsy results led to controversial conclusions, with some injuries remaining unexplained and raising more questions about the circumstances surrounding the deaths. I have a question. Yes. So because it's so cold mm-hmm. and they had these injuries, obviously, let's not talk about like lesions or uh, cuts or anything. So if someone were to beat someone up, give them a couple broken ribs, and then, I don't know, choked them out, they died. They're not going to die from broken ribs, obviously, but they let's say they die mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Would the bruising show up immediately after they died? Not immediately, but bruising that is... In the cold? It can. Yeah, absolutely. So bruising that occurs pre-mortem can still show up post-mortem. There's definitely been instances where bruising was not visible when a body was found, um, and then bruising becomes visible later during the autopsy. Um, So it's definitely possible for that to happen. It all has to do with the way, like, how long it takes for your blood to settle and things like that. Um, But pre-mortem bruises can absolutely show up post-mortem. And that's on Ashley watched way too much Dr. G Medical Examiner when she was 12. (laughs) Ashley, fun fact. (laughs) So that's good to know, because that's kind of what was on my mind. Mm-hmm. Would they even show up? And the answer is yes. Yes. They could. The human body is weird, but yes, they can. <laughs> the autopsy was like, yeah, seems like a hiking accident. Maybe an avalanche. Hypothermia. But yeah, they're weird. there's weird injuries, and we're just going to say it was an avalanche and move on. What? I mean, there's nothing they can do to figure it out, so I guess. There's also no signs that an avalanche took place when three oh, weeks no. later when the when the search was going on. They couldn't find evidence. But the, pretty much they were just like, yep, they have all these really weird injuries. We're just going to say avalanche and move on. But the autopsies really raised more questions than answers. So let's yeah. go into some of the theories surrounding what happened. I would love to hear some of these theories because it doesn't make sense. Right. These people didn't just drop dead on their own accord. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So there is, of course, the natural causes uh, theory, which is boring and wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> boring and wrong, and I hate it. <laughs> the theory suggests that hikers fell victim to natural elements like an avalanche or extreme weather conditions. Critics argue that the injuries observed, including the severe trauma, do not align with the typical outcomes of natural causes. There's also the theory that there was a military involvement in secret experiments. I've heard that um, theory. I think that's the most popular one. Some propose that the Soviet military was somehow involved, citing the proximity of multiple military testing sites in the region. The injuries, which included radiation-like burns on clothing, 
fueled speculation about secret military experiments. Also, the proximity to military testing grounds has led to speculation about accidental exposure to military explosions or experimental weapons or maybe some radiation because some of the clo- some of the clothing of the hikers did test positive for some radiation contact. Not all of them. Where would that come from? Right. So not not all clothings had uh, radiation contamination, but some did. So that's interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. Hmm. Critics argue that the injuries observed in the hikers are inconsistent with typical blast injuries. And to that, I say, yes, typical. But if these were experimental weapons, we don't know what was being tested. Right. You know? And like I said, there's also the fact that some of the hikers' items of clothing showed trace amounts of radiation, which made things very suspicious. Did the hikers maybe stumble upon a secret Cold War Soviet Union era testing site and therefore needed to be eliminated? Uh Uh-huh. Maybe. Exactly. Uh, There are also paranormal and extraterrestrial theories because what would be an episode of Insomniacs, the podcast, without aliens? aliens? (laughs) We can't do it without aliens. We can't do it without aliens and cryptids, and this story has both. Great. So cryptid. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, I have heard of that. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know which cryptid, Bigfoot, Yetis? Abominable snowman, who knows? But extraterrestrial or paranormal explanations suggest encounters with unknown entities or forces. Unexplained phenomena like lights reported in the area have contributed to speculation about unconventional explanations. In particular, on the night of February 1st, when we believe this incident did occur, signs of cl- glowing orange spheres floating in the sky were reported. Yeah, I maybe mean, that makes sense. Could it also be a Yeti or maybe another cryptid? Like I said, this is the wilderness of the Ural Mountains. It's a vast wilderness and a lot of it's unexplored. What really is there? We don't really know. There could be things. I am more, I am more likely to believe that there is something living in like the Ural mountains or like in these really remote areas of the world. That is where I'm more likely to believe that some, a a previously undiscovered entity could have lived there without us knowing, knowing it. Right. In the woods behind New Jersey, not so much. (laughs) But could Bigfoot or Yeti or, you know, a a cryptid like that exist in the wilderness where we don't really haven't explored or in the depths of the ocean? Yeah, there's shit we haven't discovered. So that's where I'm more likely to believe. Yeah, I agree with that. Proponents suggest that an unknown creature may have attacked the hikers, which could explain the traumatic injuries that we don't understand how it happened. Maybe it was because of Bigfoot or Yeti or an abominable snowman. (laughs) That doesn't make sense anyway, because even if Bigfoot did attack them, they would still have bruises and lesions. And we still go back to the internal versus the external injuries. It's the one thing that doesn't make sense to me, which is why the next theory is my favorite. Okay. The next theory is infrasound. And I love I love this theory. <laughs> Why? So infrasound are low frequency sounds below the range of human hearing. So this has been proposed to cause disorientation and panic. So maybe infrasound was played and this caused disorientation and panic among the among the hikers, which led to these perplexing behaviors that occurred. 
Infrasound theories regarding the dial of pass incident propose that low-frequency sound waves below the range of human hearing, typically below 20 hertz, could have played a role in the events that unfolded during the expedition. So here are kind of the key points to that. You have infrasound effects on humans. It's known to have various effects on the human body, including disorientation, anxiety, and feelings of unease and panic. While infrasound is not con- oh. is not generally consciously heard, it can still influence human perception and emotions. Infrasound can be generated by natural sources like earthquakes, volcanic activity, and atmospheric phenomena. Some theories suggest that the specific weather conditions in the Ural Mountains could have maybe created infrasound waves that affected the hikers. Personally, I like to connect I like to combine this theory with the military theory and believe that maybe they were testing infrasound weapons. And that's kind of maybe what caused this. Explain further. So they had these infra what is it? Infra Infrasound. Infrasound. And then it caused paranoia or anxiety and what they did the shit to themselves. So it could be something like that. I'm thinking sound waves, maybe like having these strong enough sound waves could have led to the internal injuries Yeah, where like these, the infrasound waves are what caused the internal injuries without any sign of external injuries. How? So there's a lot that's not understood about infrasounds, but if you think of sound being a wave, just like anything else, a wave has physical power that can hit. That's why radiation waves are dangerous. There's science behind the fact that sound waves could theoretically be used as weapons if the wave is strong enough. Because you're looking at sound as particle versus sound as waves. Same as like light versus particle, light versus waves. So if sound is a wave, it's going to have some sort of physical impact as well, possibly. So I like the idea of the Soviet Union testing infrasound weapons that could be used to create sort of this Im- this internal impact or these waves that could maybe <laughs> explain mm. the internal injuries without the external injuries. But a little bit more maybe. – Maybe. Maybe. The interaction between the wind patterns and the mountainous topography could also generate infrasound waves. Steep slopes and valleys can channel and amplify these low-frequency waves, so amplification of these waves. And these are all, like, how these waves could be naturally produced. I'm not of the naturally produced camp. I'm of, like, these were Soviet weapons that were being used. I like that idea. Yeah. But yeah. like I said, it can have an impact on behavior, suggests they might have triggered panic and disorientation, which might have been why they ripped open their tent, like cut out their tent, ran and left without taking any shoes or oh. socks or proper clothing. They were disoriented. They were panicked. They were, you know, it could also have hallucinatory effects. So some infrasound induced effects might include hallucinations and vivid perceptions without a clear external stimulus. And so the disoriented state of the hikers could be attributed to the psychological impact of the infrasound exposure. Now, to be fair, there is limited scientific evidence supporting the idea that it can affect human behavior. But, so this remains speculative, critics argue that other factors such as the severe injuries observed are not easily explained by infrasound alone. But that's one of the theories that I like the most, like the idea of these secret Soviet sonic weapons that were somehow being tested that they stumbled upon. Yeah. There's, are there other theories? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. We're going to go into <laughs> Oh, <them>. yes. <laughs> are okay, there well, other I'll, theories? I'm going to give my opinion at the end. Okay. 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 There's the avalanche theory, which is we not as like fun. 
But some propose that an avalanche forced the hikers to abandon their tent in a panic. There's also this idea of paradoxical undressing, which is really interesting. So when a human is suffering from hypothermia, you would think that they're cold, so they're going to add more layers. There's actually the symptom of hypothermia that leads to this phenomenon called paradoxical undressing. So when a person is suffering from hypothermia, they can actually feel like their skin is burning. And so what they might end up doing is taking clothes off to try and relieve that burning when in reality they need to be putting more layers on because it's the hypothermia that's causing it. So the paradoxical undressing is as hypothermia get wor- gets worse, they take off more clothes because of that that burning feeling that they're experiencing. So that may explain like the various states of undress. Right. But also you had other hikers who were putting on layers, like as their comrades were dying, they were taking their clothes and putting them on. So you also have some hikers that were sound enough of mind to know not to do that. There's this theory called the slab avalanche. So basically when the hikers decided that like, hey, we we veered off course, we're going to set up camp for the night. What they did is they almost, they kind of like cut a little area like down into the mountainside for them to set their tent up so they'd have a little bit of um, protection against like the winds and things. And this is a very common mountaineering tactic. Like this is not like a weird thing that they did. They kind of like cut down and in so that they could set their tent up in the little like cavern. And so a slab avalanche is if by doing that, if they weaken the mountainside enough, there could just be a small slab of snow that just like slid on top of their tent. And this is this has faced some scrutiny owing to various conflicting pieces of evidence. So like one, there's an absence of apparent signs of an avalanche or debris reported by the search party. They didn't see any evidence of of an avalanche. However, the snow the tent was covered with snow. It was cut open from the inside. So like maybe if they heard it in a panic, they like cut open the tent and ran out. Oh yeah, yeah, that could make sense. So it could it could make sense. But again, no no other physical signs that or evidence or debris or anything of an avalanche. Also, the slope of the angle above the tent wasn't steep enough really to cause a slab avalanche. And because they were in January, February, the temperatures were cold enough that the snowpack should have been pretty secure. If they had gone a few months later in the year, when like temperatures are starting getting warm and the snow is starting to melt, then the snow shelves would have been more unstable, more likely to cause an avalanche. But they weren't hiking during that time. And the hypothetical avalanche allegedly occurred during the night, at least nine hours after the slope was cut. So, like, it was just chilling out for almost 12 hours and then the mountain was like, hey, actually. I'm going to slide now. I'm I'm not liking this, you know? And finally, the the chest and the skull injuries that a lot of the hikers had, they were de- they deviated from typical patterns observed in avalanche victims. The injuries didn't match up with an avalanche. Also, oh, shit. <laughs> all- <laughs> over 100 expedi- expeditions to the region has been held since the incident, and none of them have ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. So they just said avalanche because they can't explain it right. in any other way. Exactly. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for that type of avalanche. The dangerous it wasn't con- an avalanche. It wasn't. Let's get away from the avalanche. Exactly. Fuck. Also, also the footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a whole group of people, running. They were almost like they were walking away from the tent. Which is the other thing that's so weird to me is that. They were, it, the footprints aren't people running from the tent in a panic. 
it almost looks like nine people are walking away from the tent. So why are they cutting out right. from the inside the tent to escape if they're just going to walk? Exactly. Which is why I still go back to that the sound waves because it's causing disorientation, hallucinations, anxiety, and unease. Maybe you know? they had some shrooms. <laughs> but with how prepared they were, they would have been so they would have been so careful what they packed and only packing what they needed. They wouldn't have been packing like, you know, little shroomy shrooms for a little trip halfway through their trip, you know? I don't know. <laughs> it sounds pretty miserable. I would want to take something like that. To you feel a could fun. not catch me dead doing anything <laughs> like this. I've never done anything like that. And I never will. And then there's also just animal attacks, which again it's just I've heard that too. It's I've a lazy heard. theory. <laughs> it is a lazy theory. But nothing else makes Unless sense. Nothing the animal makes attack sense. was from a Yeti. But critics point out again that animal attacks are unlikely to cause specific patterns of injuries observed. The one thing I'll give is the missing eyes and the tongue. It's not uncommon for predators or scavengers to get at the soft tissues of corpses they find. That's not uncommon. I was going to say, what is, what is stop the animal from attacking the person after they've already died? Not right. that they were alive. And that's not uncommon. So an animal got to her after she died and feasted on, had a little sneaky snack. That's gross. <laughs> like animals got to some of the bodies. Right. And that's that doesn't the, mean that someone attacked them in the night and then cut scooped out their, up eyes their eyeballs. Their yeah. One of the, like, one of the other theories that was kind of dis- disproved early on was that the natives in the area may have attacked them. Oh, please. But like, that's bullshit too. I, that's why I didn't bullshit. even like, I didn't even look further into it because it was pretty much yeah. disproven anyway. And I was like, that's just, that's just xenophobia and like being dicks about things. So yeah. those are some of the main theories that I, I looked into. So far, what are your theories? The theories that I have heard is it's a, the, a government uh, secret. Mm-hmm. They were attacked by their government. The government tried to cover it up. That's, mm-hmm. I've heard that. Um, I can't recall if I've heard there's an avalanche theory, but I've also heard that there was something that attacked them like um, a Yeti, yeah. which is a frosty Bigfoot. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's <laughs> something like that. So those are the two main ones that I've heard before in the past is government's scheme. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't an accident. This was intentional. No. There's, Yeah. What happened to them? Exactly. So, or it's – I don't believe in Yeti, so it has to be a, a government thing. It right. has to be. I don't know about sound waves. I don't know. That's one of my favorite though, but – That's only because of the – I just – the science behind it doesn't really prove to me that we can have internal injuries from sound waves mm-hmm. instead of the external. But – That's the only thing keeping it from – Percussive injuries are a thing. You know, it's not completely out of the realm of possibilities when you think of like if when a bomb goes off, you can have that percussive – that percussive like shock wave – that shockwave yeah. is very, very capable of causing injuries. But they didn't so, have bruises. Right. But a shockwave is more likely to cause internal injuries than external injuries. It causes internal bleeding and crushing. It doesn't necessarily cause external injuries. So it's not necessarily outside of the realm of possibility. Then Soviet Russia, they were testing ways to mm-hmm. align sound waves with like the type of percussive waves and like blasts that can potentially cause those types of injuries I think it was, as well. I think it was government, period. Yeah. So. Come for me. <laughs> this is a mystery that is still perplexing people <laughs> to this day. Even with 
with modern science or research, they still can't really figure out what happened? The government. There have been some reinvestigations. Uh, so they reinvestigated it from 2015 to 2019. Um, this is the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation, ICRF. So the families of the hiking victims requested it be reinvestigated. The ICRF investigators confirmed that the weather on the night of the tragedy was very harsh, uh, with wind speeds of up to hurricane force, 45 to 67 miles per hour, uh, and a snowstorm, plus the temperatures reading, uh, reaching negative 40 degrees. Ooh, that's cold. Apparently, these were factors that were not considered by the 1959 investigators because when they arrived at the Why? scene, everything was like hunky hunky dory weather wise. And I don't, I don't foresee them being like the weather's beautiful now. I'm sure a week ago it was just as fine. Like that doesn't make sense. But that the the reinvestigators were like they just didn't take into account the fact that the weather was real shit supposedly. Also, the reinvestigation believed that the events unfolded like this. The group arrived on February 1st to the Kolot Sikol Mountain, and they erect a large nine-person tent on the open slope. The group traverses the slope back and forth while they're digging They're digging that little perch thing, which weakens the snow base. During the night, the snowfall above the tent started to slide down slowly under the weight of new snow, gradually pushing on the tent fabric, starting from the entrance. And, you know, if there's one thing we know about avalanches is that they move slow enough to react to it really well. You know, they're very slow moving. They are. I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Was it one tent? I thought it was multiple tents. One tent in each one of their sites. So they had, oh, they had multiple tents? they had tents? individual tents. I don't think so. Okay, maybe I just understood that wrong. But they did have multiple tents because they were planning on setting up multiple camps but not carrying it with them as they went. No, I know. I just thought – I thought they had, like, individual tents or double tents. No. At each, each spot. So they had one mm -hmm. full tent yes. for all of them. Mm -hmm. Okay. This very slow-moving avalanche would <laughs> started to slide down slowly under the weight of the new snow, pushing onto the tent fabric starting from the entrance. The group wakes up and starts evacuation in a panic. Only some of them had time to put on warm clothes. With the entrance blocked, the group escapes by cutting a hole through the side of the tent and descending the slope to find a place that they perceived as safe from the avalanche. Only some of the members had complete clothing. The group splits. Two of the group, only in their underwear and pajamas, they were found at the pine tree. They set up down there around a fire to try and keep warm. They obviously, they're the bodies that were found first. They died of hypothermia. Three hikers attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to get sleeping bags and other provisions because people were, were naked. But yeah. they, they periodically died along the way, indicating that maybe they had fallen exhausted while trying to climb the deep snow in extremely cold weather. The remaining four, equipped with the warm clothing and footwear, were trying to find or build a better camping place in the forest further down the slope. Something spooked them. Right. Their bodies were found 70 meters from the fireplace, under several meters of snow, and with traumas indicating that they had fallen into a snow hole formed above a stream. So that's what the like the reinvestigation found that the, this very slow moving avalanche spooked them, <laughs> and they that's escaped fun. with with almost no clothing. There's also in 2019 a Swedish Russian expedition was made to the site, and after investigations, they proposed that a violent catabatic wind was a plausible explanation for the in, for the incident. So a catabatic or a cata I think it's catabatic. 
catabatic winds are somewhat rare events that can be extremely violent. And basically, they are very, very strong down gusts that can happen on mountains because of the terrain. A sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent. And the most rational course of action would have been for the hikers to cover the tent with snow. I don't know why that is logical, but supposedly, according to this this expedition, a sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent. And it would have made more sense for them to leave the tent, cover the tent with snow, and seek shelter behind somewhere else. There, On top of the tent, there was a flashlight that had been left on, which shows that possibly was left there intentionally so that the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind stopped. I don't know. I'm go- I'm still going with secret government, military. I mean, something <laughs> spooked them, which caused them to exit in a hurry, because I wouldn't be going out there naked. Right. Unless I felt like my life was in danger. Yeah. But I also think it was some kind of government thing. Like yeah. They were attacked by the government. I don't, I've heard, I haven't heard of the sound waves, but I have heard of like government, um, a government, uh, I don't know, task force or something coming after them because they wandered too far onto like, maybe they were doing secret mm-hmm. experiments and then like they were, uh, this government entity was tasked with getting rid of. The hikers. Yeah. I've heard that theory. So So, this is something that's going to continue to perplex people for years to come, I'm sure. Yeah. It shows up all the time in pop culture. So there are books that were published about this. So we have Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident by Donnie Eicher. It was published in 2013. And so this is a nonfiction book that just really delves into the incident combining investigative journalism and like the author's own kind of opinions. There's also The Devil's Past by S.A. Hunt that was published in 2018. And that's a horror novel that's kind of like weaves a fictional narrative around the Die Out Love Pass incident. So that actually sounds like it might be cool and fun. Uh, There are movies. Devil's Past in 2013 is like a found footage horror film. Think like what is the the Blair Witch Project? Like that, like oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. type of thing, or like Cloverfield or something. Yeah, a found footage horror film that combines the mystery and supernatural horror, and it follows the group of investigators who are retracing the steps of the Dyatlov Pass incident. There's also Dyatlov Pass came out in 2013, which is a Russian thriller horror film that explores a fictionalized version of events in Russian. Mm, I think so. This is a Russian thriller horror film, so it's probably in Russian. Um, there's documentaries. So Diet Love Pass, Mystery of the Dead Mountain, that came out in 2014. Diet Love Pass, Death of Nine, came out in 2016. Uh, there are multiple... I'm sure I've seen one of those. <laughs> yeah. There are multiple TV shows that have done episodes on this incident. Ancient Aliens, of course, did an episode on of it. Of course they did. <laughs> Season four, episode eight, The Da Vinci Conspiracy, explores various mysteries, including the Diet Love Pass incident. And consider speculative theories involving extraterrestrial influence. And Unsolved Mysteries also did an episode. Their original series, Season Mm. 7, Episode 16, is covered in that episode and explores unsolved mysteries and unexplained events. That's probably the one I have seen is Unsolved Mysteries because I love that show. And, of course, you're going to see there's numerous podcasts, video games, and even some inspired musicians by by the incident. So it's... All over the place in pop culture. To conclude, <laughs> the Diet of Pass incident remains an unsolved mystery that has captured the fascination of researchers, investigators, 
public mm. podcasters, you, me, everybody. Merlin, mm. Merlin's very interested. Because mm. <laughs> we don't know what happened and we're no. not gonna, but. The tragic events of 1959, where nine experienced hikers lost their lives under very mysterious circumstances, have given rise to numerous theories ranging from natural causes to paranormal phenomena. Infrasound, catabolic winds, radiation have all been proposed to, to explain the strange behavior and the injuries. But no matter what, no matter what theory you're looking at, not, no theory provides a conclusive explanation. There's a lack of clarity mm-hmm. that surrounds the incident, uh, coupled with conflicting evidence, unexplained details, and also just like that feeling that surrounds Soviet Union Russia, where it's like they're always hiding things, they're dishonest. You know, it's that that feeling of that Cold War era that leads yeah. to that additional suspicion. So mm-hmm. despite the passage of time, I think this is going to be one of the mysteries that only gets more and more confusing the more we look at it. But uh, I guess we'll never know. So this will kind of – the dial of past will remain shrouded in mystery and we'll just mm-hmm. be speculating about it for years Forever. to come. Forever and ever. And that, my friends, is a story of the dial of past incident. <sighs> <laughs> it's a I big bet one. Yuri is really excited to be at yeah. home. I bet that's traumatizing. Though. All my friends are dead. Yeah. And I don't know why. Right. Imagine that imagine me. that. Like, talk about survivor's guilt. Yeah. Where he was fully planning and excited to go on this trip, and then just he, his, his knee was bothering him, his joints, you know, he has rheumatoid arthritis. So he was like, oh, it's acting up. I can't, I can't do it. And so just turned, turned around day one of the trip. Like, and then to find out a few weeks later that they all die under mysterious circumstances. Mm, yeah. No, thank Ooh, you. Dodge a bullet. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share with others, and leave a review to help more people discover our podcast. We can't wait to keep sharing these spine-chilling stories with you. If you want more information on today's subject, all of our sources are going to be posted in the episode description notes. Stay up to date on future episodes by following us on Instagram. Oh my God. Help me, Lord. <laughs> Jesus, it's been a long day. <laughs> Take 25. <laughs> Sean put this in the outtakes. Stay up to date on future episodes by following us on Instagram at Insomniacs the Podcast, on Facebook at Insomniacs the Podcast Discussion Group, and finally on TikTok at Insomniacs.pod. Don't miss out on all of the latest true crime, supernatural, and super spooky content. God, I got through that. Okay. (laughs) So what did we learn today? I learned um, some new information about the infrasound bullshit. I don't, (laughs) I know you think, I know that's fun theory. I don't really, maybe, I don't know. I don't think it's a Yeti. (laughs) I think it had to do with the government. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what. I think the government is shady and they have their secrets and we'll never know. But yeah. I do think it had something to do with the government and they they killed their own people to keep whatever they were doing a secret. Yeah. Something had them spooked. Something did. What did? Right. What would, what would spook you so bad that you would go out in your undies out in the snow? In negative 40 degree risk, weather. In negative 40 degree weather with no shoes or socks and your undies and, and trying to, okay, well, I might have a better chance out there than here. Nope. I don't know. I w- Ugh, that's hard to think. Yeah. You know? 
I I learned that the smartest decision I've made for my own personal life is not to become a hiker. Uh- <laughs> hey, I'm an avid hiker, but I'm not. I I would not be going out on that hike. No, I don't dislike hiking. I actually do really enjoy a good like summer summer hike, but. Not a winter hike. I'm not a winter hiker. I'm not a winter camper. I'm not a winter person, uh, which is really fun living in New England. (laughs) I learned let's not hike in the wilderness in the middle of February. I'm sure it's safe. I'm sure they would have been safe if something that didn't happen, like something happened to them. Yeah. I'm sure they would have been fine. They've done that kind of a thing a million times. This was not their first hike or it was their last hike, but I feel like if nothing <laughs> happened to them, it wouldn't have been their last hike. I'm sure they would have gone again and again. That's why I spent so much time at the start of this episode talking about how prepared they were. They were, and something happened. Yeah. Something, this something wasn't weird. because they weren't prepared. You know. And we just don't know what. Maybe it was the aliens. I refuse to believe it was the world's slowest moving avalanche. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh no, the snow is slowly building up on our tent. Let me go ahead and just cut open this. <laughs> I know, that doesn't make sense to me either. So I can um I can see the sound wave at the the sound wave or something like that causing anxiety or some kind of symptoms of paranoia or hallucinations. Illusions, yeah. Hallucinations and I I don't think it was a yeti. Yeah. Even though it kind of looked like they were attacked, but Maybe I feel like I've heard a theory that they someone on the inside attacked. I don't, that doesn't make right. Sense well, they all died. Right, but like the thing is too, like imagine if they're on the tent and one person, like going back to the infrasound waves. What if like one person was really impacted by this and they kind of went a little bit psychotic and like was going to attack some of the other ones, and that's why they had to like they cut open the tent to like make a quick escape, try and get away from that one person. And then I, but that's still, you know, then if it was like the infrasound by the military bases, then they were just able to pick the, pick the hikers off one by one. Maybe. We don't know. But we, we, we don't know. We'll never know. And that is why I wanted to cover this episode because it's going to be keeping all of us awake all night, every night for years to come. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> and on that note, you guys stay spooky. Stay safe. Don't hike in the woods, please. And good night. And sweet dreams. (laughs) Sweet dreams. Bye. I have a train coming. Motherfucker. (laughs) This is just getting to the good part. So I'll let that go. Train. Train. Choo choo. Between that and the snow plows I have going on outside, it's going to be fun. I don't envy you. <laughs> the snow is picking up again. I'm over here like shaking in my boots and turning on my heater because it's <laughs> dropping into the low, low 60s and I'm cold. <laughs>